0: Welcome to the Miller Odcast, a brand new podcast from the Missouri Review. For over 40 years now, TMR has been discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Our quarterly magazine appears in print, digital, and audio formats. Learn more at MissouriReview.com. Hello and welcome to Miller Odcast the Missouri Review Podcast, where we listen to and discuss the finalists for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize. I'm Mark McKee, TMR's Managing Editor. It's good to have you back, or here for the first time, with episode 46 of the Miller Podcast, featuring the latest finalists for the 2021 Miller Audio Prize in prose, Mohan Fitzgerald's for Frank Ponomarenko for Feeding the Birds. Mohan Fitzgerald is a musician and writer born in Boston and raised in Toronto. His audio storytelling work is the culmination of years of training in both creative writing and music. He studied composition and audio production at Berklee College of Music, and received an MFA in creative writing from The Ohio State University in May 2021. His print work has been published with Guernica, Bellevue Literary Review, and Southern Indiana Review. He makes music for podcasts, most recently composing the theme for an Ohio State theater, film, and media arts department reimagining Paul Bay's groundbreaking fiction podcast, The Big Loop. He continues to work on audio projects and is drafting a novel about a hermetic movie buff and an unscrupulous video rental mogul. Here's what he has to say in his artist notes. For Frank Ponomarenko for Feeding the Birds is Mohan's third complete audio story. He produced the piece independently and composed as well as performed the original theme music. The piece is based on a short story published in Canada's event magazine, Moen wrote the story with no intention of producing an audio version, but discovered that the text was ripe for adaptation. The story deals with silences and echoes, strains on communications, auditory illusions, and the surprising power of resonance. Moen plays with the scale and size in both sound design and music production for the piece, conveying intimacy through close microphoning techniques, and distance using projected spaces, long reverb tails, and echoes. But if anything, the story is about distance yielding intimacy, people from different worlds coming together because of a shared curiosity over their differences. For Frank Pomerenko, for Feeding the Birds is, Moen hopes, a kind of secular prayer, a meditation on our small moments of revelation and connection, how unexpectedly they emerge, and how long, despite their seeming insignificance, they seem to reverberate. Moen has produced longer-scale audio works covering all aspects of production and music performance. They're available on his website, moenfitzgerald.com. Keep listening after the piece to hear contest editor Bailey Boyd and I talk about imagining narratives for strangers' lives and the welcome kindness of a story like this in times like these. But now, Moen Fitzgerald's for Frank Ponomeranko for Feeding the Birds. (laughs)
1: for Frank Panamarenko, for feeding the birds. It's my third shift at quantum ESL, and I'm reckoning finally with the fact of all these Tenzins. It can't be a coincidence that so many of my students have the same first name, but I'm also not sure where to turn for answers. It would be impolite to ask one of the Tenzins themselves, and not only is my fellow tutor a reserved kind of person, he's also, inconveniently, named Tenzin. Quantum ESL is located in the expansive bowels of a Presbyterian church on King West, which exacerbates the problem. This fall, I've learned a lot about churches. I am in one nearly every day. One thing I've learned is that because churches are so intentionally resonant, the silences in them are hard to break. So I keep my mouth shut and embrace the mystery for a while, and allow myself to become mesmerized once again by the Tenzin who is my co-worker. He's been working this job for a couple years, and he performs his tutorly duties like a machinist. I spend much of what remains of my shift watching him mark little blue staple-bound notebook after staple-bound notebook with incomprehensible speed, the check marks and dashes appearing on his pages as if by magic. His hand hardly seems to move at all, The reason I've been spending so much time in churches is because both my jobs happen almost incidentally inside of them. The first job at Quantum is to make ends meet. The other, more in line with my interests, entails restoring frescoes in Ukrainian Orthodox and Catholic churches, which I admit is strangely specific. It's just that one such job has led to another, by Ukrainian word of mouth so to speak, and I'm thankful for any kind of work I can get in the field. After my shift ends at 6, I walk along King towards another church, a small Catholic chapel I'm working in. The building is as old as anything in Toronto, and is tucked into a residential neighborhood, once staunchly Eastern European but now populated mostly by the big-eyed Tibetan children who attend Quantum ESL. The building makes me think of an igloo or an observatory, a domed rotunda with a rectangular entrance covered in brown lichen and vines. I stop for a cigarette out front because I'm not meeting the priest for another ten minutes. I see the same woman I've seen all week sitting on a bench across the street from the chapel. She is ancient and feeds pigeons for much of the day in a thick wool coat twice her size. I imagine the coat was her husband's and that she wears it in memoriam. Once, when I went out for a smoke and she wasn't there, I sat on her bench and noticed a gold plaque on the highest lateral board bearing the message for Frank Ponomarenko for feeding the birds. I decided Frank was her husband and that she is Mrs. Ponomarenko. Mrs. Panamarenko and I make eye contact a few times, but she is inscrutable as ever. She's dyed her hair troll doll red, and I figure she smells like a barbershop, like talcum powder and blue antiseptic liquid and wool. When I go inside the chapel, it's empty. I retrieve my supplies from a padlocked closet downstairs and set up. I lay a canvas drop cloth on the stairs and dangle an extension cord over the balcony, and then I stand for a moment to take in the now familiar space. The smell of the chapel is like incense and leather, dried petals in the palm of a catcher's mitt. I'm greeted by the priest on my way down the stairs, and he is anxious about the pace of my work. I'm sorry about that, I say. It's the green color on Saint... Saint Andrew. "'Sorry, St. Andrew's robes. "'I I had to wait, like I mentioned, for a chemical analysis.' "'The priest looks up into the balcony, "'a narrow, gated circle of marble benches at the base of the dome. "'St. Andrew is up there, along with my painting supplies and the drop cloth, "'a stepladder, a steel fan, and a floodlight. "'The priest is frustrated by the clutter. "'This is acceptable,' he says, "'still facing what he can only see as a mess. "'However, you have said to be done by tomorrow, which is near.' I still intend to do that. I'm going to work tonight until I finish. Will the door be locked at any point? The door to our chapel is always open, the priest says with pride. I prepare the piece for touch-ups, and while the cleaning solvent dries, the fan running on high, I eat a banh mi sandwich I bought up the street. When the wall is dry, I move the steel fan out of the way and pour an Aquafina bottle into a plastic cup stained the color every greedy kid discovers in art class, the color of all the other ones combined. I open my supply box, a set of wooden accordion expanding shelves and arrange the canisters of paint I'll need in a row up front. I admire the neo-medievalist painting of St. Andrew, which is large and intricate and sincere. Andrew looks like he has a persistent stomach ulcer and his hand, contorted into something like a gang sign at his chest, is disproportionately large. Around one in the morning I'm tired and buzzy, lulled a little too close to sleep by the warm igloo air and the gentle nip of paint fumes. I sit on the highest stone step, my nose almost touching the painting. My concentration is so complete that I'm nearly startled off the bench by the sound of someone's voice, emerging from the wall with the unmistakable cadence of prayer. The voice is a raspy alto, a language Ukrainian. I look at the wall, at the saint's languid eyes, and in spite of myself, I say, Hello? Behind me, someone laughs. laughs. And I turn around to see Mrs. Panamarenko and her troll's head, her partially toothless smile. She's at the other side of the balcony and begins walking towards me. At first, I'm terrified, and I count a thousand heartbeats in my throat while she makes her way around but when she finally gets there, she looks at me with such matronly concern, my nerves calm almost instantly. "'I hope I did not scare you much,' she says. I turn to sit normally on the step, and Mrs. Panamarenko sits in the first row, facing the chapel. "'How did you do that?' I ask. She laughs again. It's a laugh worn down by winter pigeon feedings to an airy rattle, rice shaking in a cardboard box. "'They are whisper walls,' she says. She draws a line along the plastered dome ceiling, a line from where she was standing to where we are now. Her hand comes to rest over her shoulder in a gesture to the saint, and then she retreats her hand and folds it into the other and lays them neatly in her lap. "'I am coming to this church for my whole life, nearly,' Mrs. Panamarenko says. "'I no longer believe in God.' She looks back at me to see, I suppose, whether or not I am scandalized. "'But because of this church I must still believe in prayer.' When I was a little girl, because of this wall, I believed that prayers stay here in the church. Prayers are heavy kind of talk. They stay here and they move in the ceiling like in the oven. She draws circles in the air above us. What do you call this in the oven? Convection, I say. She turns to look at me and smiles. Convection. I not believe in God, but I believe in convection. The prayers are using convection even now. You have been with them so much this week. It is a good thing. Mrs. Ponomarenko sits for a while and then wishes me good night before walking slowly downstairs. This time, with my wits about me, I hear every one of her shuffling footsteps. I cannot believe she was able to sneak up on me before. When she closes the door, I start laughing but (laughs) catch myself. The laughter dies halfway in my chest and echoes throughout the chapel for a long time. It fades out so slowly that, for a minute or so, I don't know whether I can still hear it or not. The next morning I walk by the church to see if Mrs. Panamarenko is feeding the birds. The bench is empty, so I sit down, careful not to obscure Frank's plaque. King Street rattles at the end of the block. My right ear is full of its noise, my left with the residential hum. The birds cluster around me instinctively, and I try to see them as I think she sees them. Or at the very least, I try to admire her for seeing them that way. They are mindless to me, little winged automatons. I've learned only to respect their tenacity, dusted as they always are with black film, resting resolutely on the needle-laden eaves above an ATM, but what I admire about them is exactly what makes feeding them so wildly unnecessary. Still, while I sit there waiting for Mrs. Panamarenko, not knowing if she and I would even speak a word to one another if she came, I wish I'd brought the end pieces of a loaf of bread. The birds get bored with me after a while and scamper off, and then the kids start getting out of school and laughing, calling out to each other and whizzing by on scooters and bikes, running past me holding the straps of their bags like paratroopers. The priest steps out of the chapel and notices me on the bench. He lifts his hand in greeting. I wait for as long as I can until I have to leave for work, but Mrs. Ponomarenko never shows. So I walk the rest of the way to Quantum ESL, thinking that the birds will probably be alright without her. Before the kids show up, I ask Tenzin, my co-worker, about the name. He laughs. It's the Dalai Lama's name, he says. For Tibetans, it's good luck to have the same name as the Dalai Lama. No kidding, I say, and watch the room fill up with good luck charms.
0: there internet you look sparkly today you've just listened to for frank ponmerenko for feeding the birds by Moan fitzgerald i'm mark mckee the managing editor at the missouri review i'm joined by our contest editor bailey boyd and this is the miller Podcast where we're listening to the finalists for the 2021 miller audio prize this is the latest one in prose we were just talking about it and one of the places where we're landing and talking about this story is how nice it is. <laughs> I think that in in the world that we're, that we're kind of like broadcasting our voices into right now, nice can be seen either uh, kind of as an insult. Uh, sometimes if people are thinking about literary quality, this is no reflection on the literary quality of the story, which is extremely high, but I think the culture right now is very antagonistic. Everything kind of feels like a crisis of varying degrees. There's a lot of shouting out there right now. And this story is, it's kind of, it's calming to me.
2: Yeah. And that play, I mean, it's kind of like the whisper walls that are in the actual story, right? It's speaking softly, but reverberating, Mm -hmm. um, you know, quite a bit. And and so, yeah, what you're saying, I think, is actually really bringing that bringing that in full focus. Um, because I I completely agree. There's so much so much to admire about this piece and to reflect on in its in its niceness and in its grace. Really, I mean, one of my favorite parts is, and there are many, so um, which we were just talking about, but really how the narrator tries so hard to see things, to see the world from somebody else's perspective. Um, and that's just so refreshing and so wonderful to, to look at pigeons and think they're just pigeons, but somebody else thinks they're great. So I'm gonna try that for a second too. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, even in his, his occupations, there are many ways about trying to be in different perspectives. And, and have something be yielded from that, either as an ESL teacher, or as somebody who repairs and restores kind of like the frescoes on these churches. I think we want to talk about, I mean, the title comes from this golden plate on a bench where an elderly woman sits and, and kind of feeds pigeons. And throughout the entire story, I mean, he, he observes her, but he doesn't just observe and he doesn't he doesn't limit himself to kind of saying this is an old lady who's feeding pigeons in a in what looks to me to be an oversized coat he doesn't stop there you know his imagination kind of like extends into cra- you know crafting a story and we never learn what her her story necessarily is she's just a person who consistently appears and feeds birds and then doesn't but He's trying to imagine her a life around her.
2: Yeah, it's not just a coat; it's her husband's coat, and this is Mrs. Pontmercy. Go, and she comes here every day because this bench is for her husband. And I mean, that seems so so very real, right? I mean, I feel like we all do that. Um, we we become so interested in other people's lives that we might not. No, um and so we create these these backstories um for people and so and so hearing that in this story and getting all of those details that really brings this character to life even though she is unnamed, she's still this extremely important character that actually teaches the narrator something in the story which is which is such a cool turn right we don't we don't even know her name, but she's so important here. And then she just kind of almost disappears from the story too. Um, yeah, so so cool. Mm-hmm.
0: To, I mean, to continue talking about, well, both about that and about the, I mean, naming obviously is kind of important. The way that the story ends reflects on the, the commonplace name of, you know, the ASL students and, and the people that he's trying to teach or trying to help learn English. But there's not, you know, as I was saying in the beginning, this isn't. This, this, it's an it's a nice story, but it's an observant and a reflective and a kind of considering story. That doesn't. There's no need to harangue. There's, there's the stakes. Um, when we think of stakes as being like, well, democracy is in jeopardy, or like people are dying from a from a plague, we're thinking about news stories that we get every day, or there's about to be a war. Those stakes aren't aren't part of this story. I mean, the the thing that's the closest to being the high stakes is that the priest really wants him to hurry up and finish the frescoes already. Yeah. But at the same time, the, the way that he's observant really ties itself to some of the most consequential aspects of kind of like human identity and, and human kind of like uh, understanding of their own world and their relationship to other people. Uh, There's that whole, there's that whole kind of tension between the idea of believing in God or believing in prayer. Mm. You were saying some interesting things about that, that I'd like to hear more about Bailey.
2: Yeah. How wonderful of, um, of, of thinking about it in this way, you know, this, this woman is in a church and to hear, I, you know, I still come here even though I don't, I don't believe in, in some part of it, but I believe I believe in the the collectivity of prayers and I think they form a convection in here and um what an interesting way to think about faith really I think um and and in, in a new perspective in a sacred place um that really focuses not on what the place represents but what takes place inside that place mm-hmm. <laughs> just really is that repeated a word funnily yeah, and so I I really I thought that was such an interesting perspective that I haven't I don't know that I've heard it expressed just in that way, but I found it extremely refreshing to hear it in that way and to and to think about it. It feels like it kind of opens it opens it up a little bit more to two different people kind of communing in one space and um, rather than having to agree on something that we all believe in, um, but rather believing in the actions and the words that that we each individually come to say or to do. I thought that was a very interesting perspective.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the more that you the more that you listen to it, the more that you it reveals itself to be very finely reverent of the almost invisible connections between everyone who's kind of present in, in those moments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the telling stories about strangers or the, con- the conception of stories about strangers offer us a glimpse into one of the ways that's, that's so vitally important to us as a species in, in forming those connections. Coming up with that story you're, you're inviting yourself. I mean, if you're the one coming up with a story about a stranger, especially one, and it's very telling the kind of story that he came up with mm-hmm. for her as well. And if you're the kind of person who's telling yourself a, a story like that about that stranger, you're opening yourself up to uh, having a certain level of, of feeling or fondness for that stranger too. It's also yeah. something that feels like very timely and necessary right now.
2: Yeah, you're saying that makes me realize too that the story that he creates is is really of a widow. And I think the connotation is of being alone or not around a lot of people. And then when you listen to her explain how she believes, um, it's really not, not being alone at all. It's really being surrounded by, mm-hmm. um, by prayer and, um, that, that stays kind of contained within this space. Yeah. So what you were just saying just kind of made me think about that a little bit more. And, and, and we were talking about this too, right before, right before we started on the podcast too, just about all of these little things that we kept noticing. And as we were talking, new things kept popping up and, um, I, of course, we always say go back and listen to it again, but um, it's kind of like, yeah, finding, finding new things that help really help to help a listener to understand even more, to delve a little bit deeper into this story. And uh, what you were saying just just helped me to do that too. So
0: It keeps paying.
2: <laughs>
0: Deep listening and repeated listening. It, keep, it keeps paying dividends. I also love, and I think one of the last things that we can we can say about this before doing our characteristic call to a second, third, and and seventy fifth listen is the the way that that perspective is lands kind of in the in the final lines when there's he has a I guess kind of a pleasant confusion about why so many so many of the students have the same name, and it's because that's the name of the Dalai Lama, and that it's it's considered good luck in Tibet. To to have the same name as the as the Dalai Lama. Now, in you know North American kind of like typical skepticism of you know the East in general, but like any anything that doesn't kind of that doesn't fit in you know readily into a, our own kind of cultural um, mainstays, we don't find that skepticism here. And the the final line kind of like reveals that as he's watching the room fill up with good luck charms but the more that you think about that it even it even kind of like it it's expansive it expands on just the idea of simply kind of it being good luck to be named the same name as someone but a room full of people who you know have that similarity in common at least if anything about that good luck holds i mean it's just it's doubly reinforcing and 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 multiply reinforcing it within that kind of collective it's a real gesture it's a real gesture of generosity and hope at the end. I agree and again, yeah, just in this in this instance saying that it, this was just a, a very very nice story to listen to is for me <laughs> some of the highest praise that I can that I can extend
2: i I will definitely say um to everybody to go back and 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 listen again um, to, to find the new things in this story that, that you can kind of reflect on, but also just to experience the, the small moments and to experience this narrator being so gracious and um, really seeing things from, from different perspectives, which I agree is, is, is so nice right now.
0: Yeah. And we didn't say anything about it before, but it's kind of bookended by this jazz fusion kind of track um, that I was trying to put my finger on how that made me feel uh, because it's unobtrusive entirely throughout the, um, there's a couple of other nifty kind of sonic bits, like uh, doing slight Ukrainian um, Anglo accents, you know, in the voice of the priest and some other, some other things. But I think I know what it is about the music. It it makes me feel like I'm watching kind of an introspective kind of you know character piece for, in like a 1970s movie. <laughs> it's, it had that kind of resonance for me. Yeah. I like it. And so right, like Bailey says, go listen to it again. That's going to do it for us for this edition of the Miller oddcast. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you Bailey for being with us and here is the time where we wave, wave to one side of the Zoom, wave to the other side of the Zoom. Take care out there. Bye. Thanks for being here with us for Miller Oddcast 46, featuring for Frank Pomarenko for Feeding the Birds, from Moen Fitzgerald. Oddcast 47 will be here for you before you know it. So keep a watchful ear and a listening eye about you. Thanks as always to the Missouri Review contest editor Bailey Boyd and to Patricia Miller for her generous support for the Miller Audio Prize. Be advised, entries are now open for the second annual Perkoff Prize, the new opportunity from the Missouri Review, which awards $3,000 plus publication and prizes to the poet, fiction writer, and essayist with the best work engaging the fields of health and medicine in provocative ways. Learn more on our website, or subscribe to our newsletter for weekly updates. As ever, TMR is open for submissions year-round, and we remain dedicated to discovering and publishing the best contemporary writing in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. Be heard. Give us the opportunity to discover you. Submit your work today. In addition, we have tons of marvelous and free creative content to read, listen to, and even watch on our website. Learn more at MissouriReview.com.